You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, we've been following Jesus through his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, and he's been taking us through our UPC ministry convictions. At every table, he shows up. He turns the table on our expectations and surprises us with his countercultural kingdom. He's been inviting us into lay leadership. He's been inviting us into spiritual formation. And now for these last two weeks, we hear his call to life-changing community. In the 18th century, uh, and it's just a fun name to say, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who was the founder of the Moravians, uh, said this, There can be no Christianity without community. This is how Jesus has decided to change lives through relationships. He changes lives inside a community and he changes it outside a community as it moves out into the mission that he has, uh, the continuation of his mission in the world. So here's what I, I hope to communicate this morning. It's a simple statement. I cannot be me without the presence of Jesus in you. I cannot be me without the presence of Jesus in you. And I hope you hear this uh, as an invitation. Some of you do not yet have a circle of friends with whom you are running through life in the presence of Jesus. Maybe you've tried, but you haven't been able to find one yet. I hope you'll hear this as Jesus' invitation to keep trying and to allow us to help uh, form that group with you and around you. Some of you are already in a circle of friends who are running through life in the presence of Jesus. And I hope you hear an invitation to three new corporate spiritual disciplines this morning that will enrich your fellowship and that will bring more transformation of the spirit into what you are experiencing together as you gather. I cannot become me without the presence of Jesus in you. Well, let's look at our text. It's chapter 22 of Luke. Verses 14 through 23, would you pull out a Bible and open up to Luke 22, verses 14 through 23? And if you are uh, visiting, grab a pew Bible there and you'll you'll find our text on page 857. Now let's stand and read God's word aloud together. After we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then they begin to ask one another, 
which one of them it could be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Two things strike me here. Uh, a heart and a hand. Uh, I have an image of a huge heart surrounded by a collection of hands. But we see the hand in verse 21 where Jesus says, uh, there is a hand on the table. This is a body part, uh, a, a member of a body. It's a hand. It, it stands for the whole person. It stands for an act of friendship and fellowship. There's a hand on the table. Of course, there are many hands on this table, and they surround a great heart. In, in verse 15, we find that that heart is the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. The Greek couldn't be more emphatic. Jesus used a special construction. As, as Luke recalls, it's a Hebraic instruction. It uses the same word used twice, slightly differently. And it says in, in the strongest possible terms, I have eagerly desired. I have passionately yearned. I have looked forward to this meal with you. I have longed to be with you to eat this meal. It's a huge heart in the center of a circle of, of hands. Now, why is Jesus so passionate about these hands? Uh, this is the question that I, I want to answer. Uh, take a stab at it here with three answers. And in each of these answers, I want to suggest at the end a uh, focal practice, a corporate spiritual discipline. And I commend it to you as a way of engaging and practicing this text in the circle of your own friends. Here's the first reason why Jesus seems to me so passionate about these hands. It's that these hands give strength. Jesus is, a, is passionate about hands that give strength. Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what hour this is. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke, and he has moved methodically, boldly, towards his fate on the cross, his call set before him by the Father. I must suffer. There will be no greater act of love that this creation will ever witness. There will be no greater act of courage and sacrifice that human history will be, be able to recount than what Jesus faces. This is his call. That's why he's here. He's now in Jerusalem. He sent his disciples ahead to make arrangements for a Passover meal in an upper room. And, and this is the circle. And now he sits at the table and he says, I, 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 I just want to begin by telling you how important it is to, to me to be with you in this way before I suffer. Scriptures tell us that Jesus is human. He's like us in every respect, except without sin. Which is to say, Jesus knows his own weakness. Jesus, just like you, just like me, has to face temptation. 
eye to eye. For him to prosecute his call faithfully. He has to wrestle with his own inability. And in the face of this challenge, this suffering, I can't help but wonder whether Jesus worries, whether he's anxious, whether he is afraid in his heart of hearts that maybe he won't be faithful, that maybe he won't respond to the call that the Father has put on his life, that maybe he won't have the strength. We do find him in the Gospel of Luke on his knees in the garden praying, sweating, as though droplets of blood. And so he says, I, I really needed to be with you, my, my closest friends. These were the collection of, of women that followed him and with whom he did ministry are really the people that know him best. These are the people he knows best. And so he wants to be with them in the, in the face of temptation. We all face temptations. We have multiple calls on our life. And in each of our calls, there is always a question, will I have the strength to be faithful? I want to read to you a letter that came across my desk a few years ago, written by a young man who senses his call is to be faithful in the face of sexual temptation. But he is wavering, and he needs some hands. Dear church, he writes, I'm in such pain. I just had to write something to someone because there's no one to call at this hour. Don't think poorly of me because I'm still learning to lean on God and because sometimes I need arms to hold me. Even God said, it is not good that man be alone. I like what I've learned from the Bible, even though it's hard to accept some things. But I need more. I need to see Jesus modeled by the church. I need men in my life who will love me where I'm at, who are willing and able to spend time with me. I need men to show me examples of what a healthy relationship between men looks like. Not just an hour or a week at Sunday school but in real life. Do you, dear church, want to know the real reason I stumble into pornography and sin? It is for one reason. I am starved for relationship, for friendship, for touch. But I'm afraid to ask and be told no yet again. Oh, church, do you want to crucify the outcast or save him? If you want to save him, here I am, and I'm asking to be saved. I'm asking you to be Christ's arms and ears to hold me and let me cry, to let me know Jesus does care about me, that even though I feel rejected and broken and alone, at least someone does care. Or maybe it's just easier to throw the first stone. Some days, days I would thank you for throwing that stone. The pain would end. Signed, an anonymous sexual struggler. How do you hear that letter? Does the temptation of the struggler resonate with you? Do you not need hands to hold you, to give you the strength to be faithful? Or do you hear the call uh, that he puts upon the church? Do you hear it as a call to come alongside of somebody else and hold them? with your hands, that they might know the hands of Christ hold them in the face. We all need people to give us strength in the face of a temptation. As you drive to your small group, think about what challenges the members of that group will face in the, in the days ahead between meetings. You gather for support, for strength. And it's not just about friendship. 
Notice this. Jesus, Jesus knows this is a special meal. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. The Passover meal is a memorial meal. It's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal of downloading history into the present crisis of today. It's a meal of recollecting God's faithfulness, God's deliverance in remarkable ways. When the people of God had their back pressed against the wall, their face against the, dead sea, the, the Red Sea itself, and God showed up with deliverance. Jesus needs this reminder. He needs to be in a group who can embody a memory, who will share stories of God's faithfulness for him, because soon he will uh, hang outstretched on a cross and needs to be able to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is these hands that will help him do so. So here's a focal practice. Jesus is passionate about hands that give strength, so let's give strength. Embody the memory of God's faithfulness. That's the practice. Find ways to embody the memory of God's faithfulness in your group. Share stories with one another about how he's been faithful in your past. Share stories with one another that grow out of the great narrative of the biblical texts. We might know he is as faithful today as he has ever been and find strength to move into the future. The second thing Jesus is passionate about is hands that extend grace. He's passionate about hands that give strength, but he's also very passionate about hands that extend grace. There's trouble at this table. It's interesting that Jesus seems to even enhance it somehow. There's betrayal at the table. There's a betrayer. Jesus calls attention to it, but he chooses to do so in an interesting way, in perhaps a troubling way. Jesus has already told his disciples that, uh, he says in, ver in verse 44 of Luke 9, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. They've already been put on notice, and now they're scanning the horizon. He's going to be betrayed. It's perhaps why we see them so protective of him, so defensive of him. And yet Jesus in this moment says, the hand that betrays me is on the table. Now, you and I go, okay, that's Judas. Jesus knows that's Judas. But that's because uh, we know that because we've heard the story before, right? Maybe we've read the other Gospels. Apparently, these disciples had not read the other Gospels. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't know the story. And so there's a horrible ambiguity about what Jesus says. Do you feel the power of this? I mean, I'm wondering why Jesus wouldn't say, but Judas's hand is on the table. He has other ways and other Gospels of indicating that Jesus, Judas is the one to whom he speaks. But the way Luke tells the story, there's something Luke knows about community that he wants us to get. And so he chooses his words very carefully. And he shows us that at this point, Jesus doesn't identify the betrayer. He simply says, his hand is on the table. And you're looking around the room and you're saying, come on, Jesus. All of our hands are on the table. <laughs> all of us. We all have our hands on the table. We're eating this food. We're passing it back and forth. We're resting an elbow. And Jesus says, yeah, that's the point. Why would he force this awkward conversation? He provokes each of these apostles to turn to his neighbor and to say, does he mean me? 
And surely I'm not the one, am I? Or am I? And beyond those genteel words, there is an inner conversation in which the plausibility of the assertion gains reinforcement. Because every one of these apostles knows the darkness in their heart well enough to know that it could be me. I I know enough of myself to know that, you know, I, I, I could actually do this. There's a history to my brokenness. And so they turn to one another, asking with fear in their eyes, you don't think it's me, do you? Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus make his circle of friends have this conversation? He could say to them, I'd like you to confess your sins to one another right now. But he's found a very clever way of accomplishing the same thing. As they look to one another and have to acknowledge, maybe it's me. More than that, he wants to teach them something about grace. What has just happened? What have they just been passing hand to hand as they have turned to one another in moments prior to this announcement? The body and blood of our Savior. He says, I have a new covenant for you. They have a new covenant in which sin is forgiven, in which grace is the reality. It's a covenant in relationship with me. When I am in your life, when you behold my body and my blood as sacrifice for your sin, then you know yourself for the first time as who you really are in my grace. And so, as Jesus sits back and watches them interview one another in just this way, a kind of virtual confession of sin, he is watching for whether the impact of that communal sacramental moment has sunk into his disciples. What did you just hand to one another? My body? This cup? Remember, I, div- I said to you, divide it among yourselves. You passed it, and you said the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ... So now you have a choice as you look to your neighbor and they ask you, do you think that maybe I'm capable of such destruction? Do you think my life could end in such disaster? Do you think I could betray my dreams? Do you think I could betray my Lord? When you look into their eyes, you have a choice to make. You could say, oh, yeah, yeah, Thomas, Peter, I know you just well enough that you you could actually do that. I think it's possible Jesus is talking about you. And you could speak judgment into their lives. Or you could say, Thomas, or Peter, or Susan, or Barbara, or Sam. You know what I just handed you? I just handed you the new covenant in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that is your reality. You are forgiven and you are sustained in the grace of our Savior. See, Jesus has just unmasked the pretensions of a righteous community. This will never and should never be known as a righteous community. This should always be known only as a forgiven community. A community that gives witness to the grace of Jesus Christ. I served a church and someone came up to me and they said, you know, this is a great church, but if I'm going to keep coming here, I'm going to have to buy a new pair of blue jeans. That was fashion, right? Wow, why? Because this church is just a beautiful people's church. And they looked around the room and they saw... Uh, People who just looked like their lives were all put together and well manicured. And they knew in their heart that wasn't them. What What a horrible image of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus unmasks it. One of the best depictions of the church I have ever seen was a night I spent 
uh, around a campfire with a group of about 80 men. They were on retreat. And after the program had ended, they went out and they uh, lit this bonfire and they sang songs and they prayed. And then the unexpected happened. A man stepped out of the crowd and he said, you know, I've been a leader in this church for a number of years. I need to tell you something that I've never told anybody. I'm an alcoholic, and I am to this day struggling with sexual addiction. Really, a banker steps out. You know, I've been in this church for years. Um, served in a number of different roles of leadership. But my relationship with my wife has not been what it looks like on the outside. I have been unfaithful. And I watched these men, one after another, tell what they had gone through and describe the brokenness of their lives. And then I watched the men in the circle lay hands on them and pray for them and, and hug them and embrace them with the, the present living grace of Jesus Christ. It's like never, nothing I have ever seen. I can't imagine a more life-changing evening than, than what I witnessed that night. We, we went away transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, uh, sin demands to have a person by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them and the more disastrous their isolation. But when they confess their sin, now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. It's been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus so eagerly desires to eat this meal with you because he wants there to be someone next to you who passes grace hand-to-hand -hand into your life. So the practice here is uh, to embody the forgiveness of Jesus. So the practice of life-changing community is to embody the forgiveness of Jesus. You've got to make sure that your circle of friends is confidential, that it's safe, that it's open to the reality of the brokenness of our lives, and that as people feel comfortable, they feel free to share with you what they're really going through, and that then you will unfold your arms around them and let them know because of Jesus, they are forgiven. Jesus is passionate about hands that give strength, that extend grace. Finally, Jesus is passionate about hands that serve one another. It's interesting that right after this text, an argument breaks out, a dispute or a quarrel, and it's a quarrel about greatness. And Jesus speaks into the argument, but he, he, he doesn't, interestingly enough, deny that greatness is to be pursued. There's nothing wrong with pursuing greatness. In fact, he seems to honor the ambition. But the question is, what is your definition of greatness? And he uses the table as an illustration. So often he refers to the common elements that are in front of him. He says, you know, who's greater? at a table, the one who sits and who is served, or the one who waits on the table and serves it. It's an apt illustration because the word for service, one of the two major words for service in the New Testament, the one that Jesus uses here, is the word that originally meant table service, waiting on tables. That's what a servant is. Which is greater, the one who sits or the one who serves? And Jesus helps him out. He goes, because it sounds like a trick. It's always a trick question with Jesus, right? But, but he says, I'll tell you the answer. It's the one who sits. It's the one who lets everybody else do the work. That's the definition of greatness that you're used to. And it is a definition of greatness, but it's just not mine. That's the definition of kings. That's the definition of Gentiles or unbelievers. 
He says, but I tell you, I am one among you as one who serves. Jesus has provided the meal at this table. He is the one who has served. He is the one who is greatest of all. And it is in his greatness that he invites his followers now to live. And it is in the context of this community that they can grow into that greatness. It takes community in order to let other people lay a claim on your life. See, one of the reasons I resist community is not just that I'm an introvert, frankly, if I'd be honest. It's also that I like my autonomy too much and I don't want to be encumbered by your needs. I don't want to give away my freedom in this way. We have a mixed up idea of what freedom is. We think of freedom as the ability to do whatever we want to do at any given point in time. Options. Choice. In the Bible, freedom doesn't mean that. Freedom is the freedom to become who you are meant to be. Freedom is one of identity. And it is to this freedom that Jesus calls his disciples. And they get that freedom by giving up the freedom of of autonomy. It's countercultural for us. We live in a day where, as the Wall Street Journal re- recently published, our favorite word is maybe. And the journal says, refusing to commit has never been easier, and it says a lot about us. A UVA English professor named Mark Edmondson writes in an essay about college students today, and they're as much like us as more like us than we'd like to acknowledge. They say, ask an American college student what he's doing on Friday night. Ask him at 5.30 Friday afternoon. I don't know, will likely be his first response. But then will come a list of possibilities to make the average Chinese menu look sullenly costive. The concert, the play, the movie, the party, the stay-at-home chilling or chillaxing, the monitoring of sports center, the reading fast, fast of an assignment or two. University students now are virtual hamlets of the virtual world, pondering possibility, faces pressed up against the sweet shop window of their all-purpose desiring machines. To ticket or not to ticket, buy or not to, party or no, or perhaps simply to stay in, to multiply options in numberless numbers never to be closed down. And once you do get somewhere, wherever it might be, you'll find that, as Gertrude Stein has it, there's no there there. At a student party, about a fourth of the people have their cell phones locked to their ears. What are they doing? They're talking to their friends about about another party they might conceivably go to. And naturally, the simulation party is better than the one that they're now at and not at. Though, of course, there will be people at that party on their cell phones talking about another simulacrum gathering spiraling into MC Escher Infinity. (laughs) Keep your options open. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we disclaim any binding of our freedoms. And yet, this is the first step towards becoming a servant. To allow other people's needs and desires to implicate you. Who is it that when they have a need, implicates you? Such that their need is, by definition, your need. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, refers to discipleship as unselfing yourself. Only you can't do it by yourself. You cannot unself yourself. You need other people to do it for you. This is why we call parenting the graduate school of discipleship. Uh, Actually, marriage is the graduate school of discipleship. Uh, Parenting is postdoctoral work. 
because there's a little child in that next bed or in that next room who um, just knows that their need is your need. And it is. They have a, a way of modulating their uh, vocal cords so that you will respond instinctively. And it will begin to change your heart. It will begin to increase your capacity to serve. It will, it will broaden your love. And you're being changed. You're being drawn into the greatness of Jesus Christ. The practice of life-changing community, then, this focal practice that I would recommend is, is this, that make mutual commitments that require you to serve covenants with one another. Make mutual commitments that require you to serve. Well, Jesus is passionate about this meal, and he wants to eat it with you and with me. He wants us to be surrounded by hands that give strength, that extend grace, and that serve one another, and to know the great heart in the midst of that circle. I cannot become me without the presence of Jesus in you. Jesus would uh, ascend to the right hand of his Father. He takes his body. He is physically there, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed right now. And yet the Scriptures could speak of another body, and that is us. We are all members of Christ, his body. We are all members of one another. His spirit has been poured out so that through the spirit of God, Jesus is present to us in this hour at this time right now. He's here. And the healing ministry of Jesus is one of the ways that we experience the body life uh, of Christ, the body life of this congregation. And so we have an opportunity now to uh, to pray for healing and, and ask Jesus, to give witness to his presence in our midst, to give witness to the presence of the kingdom of God. He doesn't always heal, and prayer doesn't do it. Jesus is free. He chooses how and when he will heal. And yet, he doesn't honor our wishes. He honors our prayers. He's given us very specific instructions. In the book of James, chapter 5, Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. How do you need healing in your life? Is it for relationship? Is it for physical healing? Is it for work? In so many ways, we can come now to be healed. You may come on behalf of somebody who doesn't have the strength or ability to come, and we can anoint you with oil by proxy. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. He is here and wants to touch our fleshes, our physical bodies, uh, and he does so as we pray. So I would invite our elders to come forward and members of our prayer team, and I would invite you to be in prayer for those who come forward. And if you are led, please do come uh, down front. And I believe in the balcony we also have elders who are available to pray uh, with you. We will stand and, uh, and sing a hymn. It's printed in our bulletin. Let's stand and sing together. And as you are led, please come for some prayer. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.